Finally, it's good to be home after a long weekend on the road. Very exciting homecoming yesterday. And I got to do an interview with RT International. That's always fun. Um, I haven't decided if we're going to post a clip from that yet because it's really short. But it's interesting how they wanted to look at Biden taking America through the five stages of grief on Afghanistan. So we're going to definitely get into that with our Afghanistan block today. We got a COVID block. We got a great guest, a uh, really interesting guy who, uh, this is Jason Brennan, a uh, very significantly established uh, libertarian author making the case for, uh, it, it wrote a story at uh, BMJ Journals that really uh, uh, pissed off a lot of libertarians. He wrote a, a paper called A Libertarian Case for mandatory vaccination. Uh, this paper argues that mandatory government-enforced vaccination can be justified even within a libertarian political framework. We'll see about that in about an hour. We've got Ed joining as co-host today from, I believe, I believe from the Lanai, from like over there, in Gardenia, right over there. Uh, we've got COVID. Of course, we've got a COVID block. A little interesting take on that. An update on Hurricane Ida and what's going on in New Orleans with the power grid there. Uh, of course, Afghanistan. Man, the helicopter rides. Yeah, that's what the show is uh, at least titled on today. Physical removal helicopter rides in Kabul. Uh, but we've also got an interesting correction uh, to issue. I, I guess we'll do this. We'll do this one with Ed uh, after Jim gives us the producer notes. What's going on, everybody? Good morning to you. Hope you're ready for a great show. I was talking with the guests backstage beforehand. It's going to be a great interview, so I look forward to it. I hope you do, too. T.me forward slash Adam versus Mance, where you can find links for everything that Adam just mentioned that we're going to talk about on the show today. If you want to follow along or you want to save some links for later, you can do so at T.me forward slash Adam versus Mance, public telegram channel that everyone's welcome to. Uh, patreon.com forward slash Adam versus the man. It's how you can financially support the show. One, five, 10, even $50 a month package. If you want to be in the private producers club, $10 a month is a sweet spot to get you access to that. It's also a telegram group where we share links ahead of the show and discuss, uh, new ideas for new, uh, people we might want to have on interviews, things like that. So if you want to be involved in that part of the show, patreon.com forward slash Adam versus man has what you need. Next, we check out the Garden of Freedom on Instagram. If you want to see all the pictures and videos of life up in Gardenia, sunsets, uh, fur babies, cats and dogs, even cats eating scorpions. He's got all the great videos and pictures on Instagram at the Garden of Freedom is the handle that you search for. Uh, definitely very cool pictures and videos on there. Next, homefrontbattlebuddies.com. That's the best veterans nonprofit organization using alternative therapies to try to end the need for combat veterans in the first place. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? You can donate to their causes at homefrontbattlebuddies.com and all of your donations are theft deductible. So that is uh, the best part about life itself at homefrontbattlebuddies.com. Next, we check out the crypto6.com, the Bitcoin church that was rated up in Keene, New Hampshire. You can donate cryptocurrencies you might be well stocked in through these QR codes to help them with legal funds. Or you can write to Mr. Nobody who's still sitting in a cage. 
at this top link right here. We request you do that from the crypto, the number six.com. Next, uh, we're looking at gogreenenergyonline.com, the website we send everybody to to educate yourself on how to do it yourself. If you want to learn everything there is to know about solar panels, micro wind power, just getting your house zero energy home, self-sufficient off-grid no matter where you live. You can educate yourself to do it yourself at gogreenenergyonline.com. And one more thing I want to share with the world today. Your slice of heaven comes to you live today. You don't get no picture. You get the live feed of the most beautiful angel on the planet. There she is. The world needs to aspire to be this peaceful and this beautiful and this perfect. Look at her. She's waking up for the world. First time, six days of life. She's in the middle of her sixth day of life. And she's live stream famous to the world. She's the most beautiful princess on the planet. Look at her. I just made everybody's day a million times better. You're welcome. Follow me for more beauty from heaven. <laughs> oh, what go. a great way to start the show. Uh Thank you so much, Jim. But what get your get get back on screen for a second here. I want to I want to include you in this first little segment uh, addressing okay. um, Ian Crossland on uh, the Timcast IRL with Tim Pool from yesterday. And uh, go go in and, and and bring Ed up on here too for this because I want I want to make sure I want to get I want to get both y'all. On this, welcome Ed Vallejo coming to us from the Lanai here in Gardenia with that beautiful view behind him. Uh, so, uh, and, and Ed, I think we're going to bring you back, of course, uh, for some veterans' perspective on our Afghanistan block. But I want to jump right into this because I, I, I'm afraid I, I may have had a bit of an emotional response. So let me set this up. Uh, this morning, I wake up to two text messages from people saying, "Hey, you got mentioned on Timcast." check it out and and they said and one of them said hey you probably want to issue a correction for this and i was like Ooh, all right kind of primed me so i go and i and i pull up the the video the link that he sent me and it's tim cast it's his uh two hour uh podcast that he does and i look at this and i go like wow this is awesome good for him because i remember when he was just coming up as an independent media personality, 2011, going right. back to the Occupy movement with live streams, when I was doing, you know, that was when I first got big too. After the, I would say first got big because it was sort of like the third phase in my independent media career from uh, you know, radio to television to focusing on YouTube. But I was doing the man on the street interviews uh, and he was doing live streams uh, with that. And I was, I was excited to see that this was still the golden age of of YouTube, right? That people could still of, of of independent media on the internet. That that anybody could can could use these platforms, mainstream platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, to connect with a major audience. But of course, YouTube, especially for for Tim Pool and my, and and myself. Right. And then uh, when YouTube got bought by Google. I started getting shadow banned and censored very heavily on YouTube. And this was 2013, 2014, 2012. I forget when the actual purchase was, but it was around that time the Google AdSense system took over YouTube monetization. And 
along with that came Google censorship and shadow banning. And so I, I did, I'm going to go ahead and play. So like I, I see like right away, the first thing I see is he's got a million subscribers. I, I go, you know, good for him. That's awesome. He's got a quarter million views on a two hour live stream from the day before. How many of you we're broadcasting right now on a YouTube channel, with a quarter million subs that had a quarter million subs back in 2014 when I started getting super heavy shadow banning and then uh, well, 2013 really. And my subscriber base has been flat since then, but even proportionally you would think, right? Hey, we got, we got a quarter million subs. You know, we should have similar proportion like of, of live viewership. He's got, and to be fair, he's got, he's got more subs than me right now. I would suggest that's because of the shadow banning of the last, you know, seven or eight years that I've experienced, experienced with YouTube. But so a quarter is, is, 24-hour view count for a live stream is a, a quarter of his subscriber base, right? Quarter million views, million subs. Even for me today, with a quarter million subs on YouTube, you would think, okay, so what? What's what's a quarter of that, right? It, it would be uh, what a quarter, sixty-two and a half thousand, right? If you go exactly quarter million divided by four, or whatever, right? Sixty-two and a half thousand, and and what is it like? 500 after 24 hours on our, our videos on YouTube, some of them get, get near, you know, between 500 and a thousand views. And, you know, you look at the live viewership on YouTube and you go, yeah, this is something else. So that's, that's what the first thing I see in this. So I'm going to go ahead and play this clip and I'm, I'm not having Jim play this because one of the things that people like me have experienced on YouTube that maybe people like Tim have not, is uh, is a certain scrutiny for intellectual property violations, and right. uh, and and anytime I say anything about COVID, we get videos pulled down. Anytime I use a music clip that we don't own the rights to by accident because it's in the background in some other mainstream media news clip that I'm clearly fair use commenting on, like so, I I have had to sort of strip down that way, but I don't want to misrepresent what Ian said about me on the show. And I don't, and it was, it was, I've already spoken about this, like way, giving him way more time than, <laughs> than, than he gave me uh, in this, this offhand remark. Uh, but I want to make sure also that, that my, I'm not being like unnecessarily emotional perhaps in my response. So I'm going to play the audio okay. through my laptop. That's the message they're sending. Give the people something to lose and you will own them. It's messed up. Did you see what, you know, Adam Kokesh? Did you see what yeah. they did to him back a couple few years ago? Yeah. He went to D.C. and protested with a shotgun, right. an open carry. And they were like, well, that gives us, you know, um, what do they call it? When they have probable cause, yeah, probable cause to search your apartment. So they went to his house and they found mushrooms in his apartment through prison. Yep. For okay, this, so, so two quick technical things that are wrong. And this is nitpicking. This is not my point. Um it wasn't prison. It was four months, uh, Virginia jail, DC jail, mostly DC, and uh, it, it wasn't an apartment. I, I know those are those are nitpicking things. I don't care about that. But you can tell that he's he's using me as a sympathetic case as a victim of government, which is, which which I appreciate. But next part here's where I think it goes wrong. And he came out a completely different person. Like he does not talk crap about the government anymore. Yeah. Fair. 
He came out a completely different person and doesn't talk crap about government anymore. Wow. Yeah. No, and he makes, and this is where, all right, I'll let you guys respond. That's it. That's just, this is the, that emoji that blows your mind. Like, how do you even, that's, it's almost troll status. It's almost troll status. Did like literally me? making Did it up. Fabrication. Me? I mean, it's fabrication. I mean, anybody can take five seconds and yeah. pull you talking crap about the government a trillion times between then and now. So yeah. he's literally fabricating it out of thin air and it has 0% basis in fact. So there's this, there's this weird thing that a lot of people do that I don't do and, 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 and I don't respect people doing this at all because it's so dishonest but when people don't know shit they just make shit up to fill in the gaps and it's like uh, to say that oh well you know i don't like libertarians i, I don't know and to, to ian's credit so i called him out on twitter and he actually responded so i hope that he's watching this or gets a chance to watch this he says what did i get wrong i will rectify it on the show so maybe maybe he's making this completely as an honest mistake Maybe he's passing on what someone else has told him. Maybe he's not personally guilty of this really disgusting, uh, intellectually dishonest habit of saying like, oh, well, I don't know. So I guess I'll just fill in with what squares with my reality and my narrative, you know, and, and, and he's trying to say that I was somehow broken by my jail experience. Um, Ed, go ahead. I know you want to say my generation would call that dastardly and despicable for throwing you under the bus. Well, I have a theory. I have a theory to explain it, though. This is the only thing I can think of to wrap my mind around with your YouTube shadow banning and everything. He saw you go to jail. Then he stopped seeing your content. He exactly. didn't but then but then YouTube went ahead and notified him while you're doing Adam loves the man. And that's the only thing he's seen. That's the only no, thing he's no, seen. No. So he it's literally like thinks you're going the line now all of a sudden. I mean, that's it's not funny. like we got tons of viewership. And that was pretty obvious parody. Um, but yeah, here's, uh, let me play the rest of the clip. Then we'll, then we'll wrap this up. He was a hardcore ex-military. Really? They just look for it. They bring the hammer when they come. He doesn't do any anti-government. I, I shouldn't say any, but he's not the outspoken vocalist that he was in the early days, like screaming profanity-laced tirades about military-industrial complex because of mushrooms. Because we're going to have... Yeah, now I just do it on international television with RT and two hours a day on this podcast and wrote a book when I got out of jail and, oh, ran for president and cursed on the libertarian presidential political debate stages about government and the military industrial complex. But because Ian didn't see me on YouTube perhaps. And, and, and it's this thing, like, I, this is, I, I, so I, I want to, uh, Jim, even give him more benefit of the doubt and suggest that he's just passing this on because somebody else is is spreading rumors about me and saying like, oh yes, he's irrelevant now. He was beaten by this experience with civil disobedience where he did four months uh, in jail seven years ago and he's a big pussy now and, and, and libertarians are cowards and they confront government and they, you know, they run and hide. And it's like, I, what other false narrative is behind this? And, and, and again, to Ian's, well, let me, I, I, let me make sure this is the rest uh, of the medical. Did you see how uh, the government wants to of expand 
a federal yeah i think that's it i'm pretty sure that's it but that's 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 what i have become in i i don't know in ian's ian's mind because i've been censored because i've been shadow banned and and what's it's really weird like there is an emotional element of this for me because it's like I, I hate to say, hey, I should not have been shadow banned. I should not have been censored like this. I should be the one with a million subs getting a quarter million views a day. But then on top of that, it's like the, the, the cool kids or the kids that got approved by the authorities to not like. who. So, so I, I want to challenge them on a deeper level here. Like that, that, that hey, guys. Look at what you represent. Look at what I represent. And I want to, I, I kind of want to take this opportunity to speak to Tim Pool's audience and say, like, look, what Tim Pool does might be great in and of itself. But if he is the one not being censored when voices like mine are being censored, then he is a form of controlled opposition. And by watching that show instead of this show, you are falling for the censor's game. You are falling for their creation of controlled opposition. Whereas what I'm at, look at the difference in the message. And I'm not an expert in Tim's message. And I'm not pretending to say that, to make any, I am not making any accusations against even, e, uh, the only accusation I'm making here is that Ian is wrong, okay, that he was wrong. And he's, he, he, he seems, from Twitter, at least willing to correct himself. So good for him, good for his intellectual integrity. He might have, he might not be guilty of just making shit up. He might just be guilty of passing something on without fact-checking it thoroughly. That's fine. We all do that. We all have, I think that's, that's totally acceptable as long as you're being open as long to correct willing to check yourself afterwards right but then i would i would say why is that the message that doesn't get censored and this is the message that gets censored it's because it does directly challenge authority in an effective way this is the message that they don't want you to hear so this is this is i'm not just reaching out i i, I hope that in some way this gets the attention of of tim pool himself because i i do i mean personally I, I like him i respect him i don't have any I mean, reason not to, um, but that if, if he wants to have intellectual integrity as a producer, now that this has been brought to his attention and Ian's attention, that they had this false narrative, like what do they do to correct it, to acknowledge that this message of, of hardcore libertarianism, which to me is voluntarism, is love, is ethics, is connection, is civil disobedience out of that love, out of that passion for humanity and standing up to injustice and standing up in a way that is looking at government, even the most evil actors as sympathetic human beings and with love and compassion, empowering them and empowering you, the audience, to be a part of this great leap forward for humanity, right? That we're, we're in right now, this, this potential uh, to move past the current paradigm of centralized, coercive, abusive governments to something better for humanity. And instead you're being led into this controlled opposition audience where it's, oh, just just listen to this, just listen to this. This this is the neutered version. This is the harmless version of, of what independent media could be. Too Unique gives the comment, I think it's about portraying himself as higher than you or above in authenticity based on the second clip. Based on the third, I think he means the viciousness of the rants, but just my speculation. I agree with Too Unique. 
when in your earlier dissertations you were louder okay whereas time went on you matured quite well and you're not as loud but you're still as adamant as you were now i don't understand where he comes off with making that kind of comment other than trying to steal your street cred and slough you off as ah oh, don't worry don't even watch him you know he's kind of fallen by the way where well, this is the place to be type of thing Whereas I disagree yeah. completely. What did he miss entirely your presidential campaign and why you ran as president? I mean, come on. Right. How right. can somebody say, oh, they're not that much against government if you ran on the properties of destroying it all? Right, right, right. Yeah, it's a pretty big one to miss, too. I mean, it takes a few seconds of research, you know, but. Again, like you so, said, it probably just uh, it's probably just boils down to uh, a spur of the moment kind of conversation where he just passed yeah. on something he had already heard just to give an easy answer, so to speak, and move on with the conversation. You know. Yeah. So I just I, I want to step back and like depersonalize it from me for a minute and say this is not just about me, but everybody who is, and because and, there are people who have experienced, I guess, worse censorship, who've just had their channels completely deleted. But it, again, it, it, it goes back to the strategy of how do the authorities squash dissident movements? How do they entrench their authority? How do they keep themselves in power? And it's not by murdering, you know, Fred Hampton, and, you know, the Black Panther activists, because if you try to do that today, it would be too obvious. There'd be too much of a backlash. But to make sure that all dissident movements stay in that realm of controlled opposition, they never get out of control. They never get momentum. They never get any kind of power. And this goes back to, like, why the thing with the shotgun happened in the first place is a lot of it was me going, hey, I, my online microphone has been stolen from me by this Google manipulation I kind of have to reach out and, and do something that's a stunt in the mainstream media to get people's attention. Uh, but it was because I had already experienced that kind of censorship. And if anything, you know, Ed, aside from having, I think, you know, continue to mature in my message. And even at that point, I had already matured from when I started with Iraq Veterans Against the War, uh, you know, in, in full-time activism going back to 2007. But uh, you know, it, it's, it's especially frustrating when you go, oh, this is the effect of that censorship. And I, I think of how many other libertarians, it, what, what bothers me about Ian's remarks is the, the implication or the insinuation that somehow I was cowered by this. And, and, and that's the worst part of it, because that's obviously not true. But what's, uh, or, or, or somehow backed off my positions or principles or enthusiasm for the message or activism. But what's what kind of breaks my heart about hearing that from his voice on that platform is that it is true about a lot of libertarians who I've seen come and go and get discouraged. Whereas I'm sitting here, I'll, I'll talk to 50 fucking people a day live on YouTube. If that's all that I, I will still 
rant against the government because I, it, it's out of love and wanting to empower people who are willing to listen to this, but like step back and go, well, gee, who's being censored in a wall? For sure. Ed, you want to bring up this O'Donnell for Liberty on YouTube comment? Sure. He says, Adam, you may be interested to know that ISIS accounts have been sharing our anti-war video with Scott Horton and Magnus on Twitter. Oh, yes. By the way, uh, oh, uh, Justin O'Donnell, thank you again for that interview last week. That was a lot of fun. Um, I posted on Twitter, can someone please tell me all their favorite Taliban account accounts to follow? And the only responses I got were jokes, like at FBI, at CIA. No, I was seriously asking, and I was afraid, what, are they, are, did they get cut then or whatever? So please, please, Justin and anybody else, um, tweet at me, at Adam Kokesh. This is like the last mainstream social media that I have any, like, shred of respect left for. Twitter being censorship light, sort of honest, open forum. Um but yeah, I, I want to follow. I, let's talk to the Taliban. Like, give me some real Taliban account, accounts to follow. If they're listening to our interview, like, yes, that's awesome. Um, and 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 actually, I I I if anybody from the Taliban is watching this, I know some of y'all speak English. Um, I, I hope that 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 our message uh, in, in our coverage of the end of the war in Afghanistan has been. Uh, uh, appropriately sympathetic to the Taliban position when the American mainstream media has failed so badly and fed into the American government's uh, desire to demonize you. So I, I, if there's some, if you haven't, if someone who's doing English language interviews uh, for the Taliban, we'd absolutely love to have them on. Uh, so O'Donnell writes, Malang Koste is is the best one. Good. I, I, I assume that's one of the like you know official spokespeople still tweet it uh, though I, so he doesn't have to go back and reread that <laughs> when i've when i've seen twitter stuff from the taliban covered in other articles it's always like a screenshot and then i go to the account and it's not there um i, I mean i've done that a few times i i under research on this subject i should have talked about i should have done more before the show um but yeah, so on on you know on Twitter, I about this I wrote, uh, "Why did you lie about me on the Timcast stream yesterday, Ian Crossland? Being shadow banned on YouTube is bad enough, but it's worse when other independent media people make up lies that help the censors." Tim, why have someone on who makes things up about people he doesn't like? And you know, I I think I will I will admit to Ian, um, I was I was unfair in calling it a lie, um, but it is kind of. Um, you know, if, if, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. So sorry about that. Uh, but uh, I was I, I was triggered, as, as they say. Right. Is, 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 that, is this an appropriate use of the term? <laughs> oh, Mr. Uh, O'Donnell comes back. Mr. O'Donnell comes back and says, Malang is oh. just a dude in Kabul who shit posts and posts anti-American memes. <laughs> All right. I'll follow him anyway. All right. But uh, just to move on to our headlines so we can get some of these blocks out of the way uh, before we get to our guests at the top of the hour. Um, and anything you guys want to say to Tim Poole or Ian Crossland or on the subject of uh, this weird just acknowledgement of how effective the censorship has been. I'll give him the general. You should read more. 
<laughs> and in this case, it could have just easily probably been when you were replying on Twitter, just click on Adam's name and look through his previous tweets for a couple months and see, oh, he has been talking mad oh, really? shit about the government. Oh, look, a video every single day he talks about, oh, wow, oh, he's been doing a lot more. Oh, oh, oh. And have yourself an epiphany, Tim. <laughs> my my comment on Tim Pool is how he got his big numbers. Okay, those big numbers that he has right now are not us. They're not you and I, the patriot community of that that base that we really want it to be. It's not the libertarian community, is what it is, is Tim got big because he was doing all this stuff on the street and all this stuff, and then he went to Trump events and had his camera do the whole Trump event. And his his camera and his station did the whole Trump event and they were blocking everybody else out and he was so little they didn't block him out and he became the only one where you could go and see some Trump events and people started subscribing and subscribing and before you know it he got really big on the Trump crowd. Okay? Mm -hmm. So don't let that big numbers fool you thinking that he's got all the libertarians and all these He's got, you know, hundreds of thousands of... No, he doesn't. Well, I know he's got a few of my friends who watch <laughs> because they texted me this morning. Sure, yeah, they right. do. He, he does. I mean, we, we keep tabs on everybody. Sure. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that perspective. Thank you, Ed. Word. All right. So, Ed, keep the comments coming. Um, you got it. I'll be checking with you before the hour, hopefully at the end of our uh, Afghanistan block before we get to our guest. And now to Louisiana Hurricane Ida USA Today. Now, this is just kind of an out there headline. And it, I, I I know this is, I, I don't mean to laugh about the situation in New Orleans because it's horrific. And I am absolutely, you know, sympathetic to people, especially who are suffering because they were sucked into staying in a place where they were dependent on government infrastructure and government protections. And despite Hurricane Katrina, they're still there. For this headline, a man attacked by alligator in flooded Louisiana waters after Hurricane Ida. Oh, wow. And you know what? I'm, I'm like, there's video, video, video or it didn't happen right now. Uh, but this is this is a pretty horrific story. This is true. Now, the, 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 the article goes on to describe uh uh, that alligators are actually, uh, well, as Joe Wasilewski, a uh, conservation biologist for University of Florida, says, uh, they are much smarter than people. They instantly seek shelter. They have burrows or caves they call home, usually under a mud or canal. And believe me, the first thing are, they are going to do is go into those burrows and caves. Uh, but researchers say alligators do pose a danger after a storm, especially in areas near bodies of water. They can venture through flooded waters into neighborhoods and communities that don't typically see such reptiles. So the story comes kind of secondhand from uh, Jason Gobert, spokesman for the St. Tammany Fire District, number one. So as he told USA Today, um, and, and this was that there was a 71-year-old man who was outside his house and got attacked by an alligator who supposedly took his arm off. She helped him pull him onto some steps and out of the floodwaters. But after going to grab some medical supplies and call for help, he was no longer there. So the story, like, ah, it doesn't quite add up for me. It's a little disappointing. Uh, 
it's it's plausible. I don't want to be some kind of like a skeptic of everything that's in the mainstream media. Um, but like you got your arm ripped off by an alligator and you sit there while someone else goes to get medical supplies and come back to the place where the alligator is and might get you again. Like I, you take the person with you into the place where the medical supplies are. Right. I just, you see what I mean? It does. It doesn't quite add up, but a uh, sensationalist story to get attention in new Orleans right now. Uh, our, yeah. I'm, I can accept that. Uh, NOLA.com with a more serious follow-up here. How long will power be out in Metro New Orleans? Entergy says it will assess damage Monday. It will likely take days to determine the extent of damage to Entergy's power grid in Metro New Orleans and far longer to restore electrical transmission to the region, company executives said early Monday morning. Four parishes in southeast Louisiana and parts of two more had their main source of power cut when eight Entergy transmission lines failed in Hurricane Ida's intense winds, including a tower that fell into the Mississippi Rivi, R- River. Excuse me, Mississippi Rivi. Wouldn't that be fun to say every time? New Orleans is in the dark, along with Jefferson, St. Bernard, and Plaquemines Parish, as well as parts of St. Charles and Terrebonne Parishes. Uh, but so far, exactly what caused the transmission lines to shut down after Ida came ashore at Port Fourchon? As a devastating Category 4 hurricane is unclear as the storm's devastating winds have prevented crews from conducting a damage assessment. So, I, I mean, what caused it? Well, gee, having a government-privileged quasi-monopoly on, on power supply in an area and no incentive to actually provide consistent service because there's no competition. I mean, I could I could go on and on, but right now, I it's it's maybe it's kind of like, ah, it's not the time. Um when we see this next headline from the Daily Mail, Nola Mayor promises to lock up looters in wake of Hurricane Ida thieves ransack stores in scenes reminiscent of Katrina, a city faces at least three weeks without electricity. So uh, in one case, two men were caught by a drone camera trying to rob an ATM machine in the scorched remains of a market in the New Orleans neighborhood of St. Claude. New Orleans Mayor LaToya Cantrell said of looting, my directive has been very clear, lock them up. We will not tolerate, and we have not tolerated it. The problem is, what if you're looting the grocery store where you depend on the grocery store for food, but the grocery store is shut down because the government-sponsored electrical grid has failed. Oh well, we're going to lock you up. And this is where, uh, you know, I, I am. I'm again afraid of, as there was post Katrina, uh, a, a very callous government response to this that led to uh, a lot of, uh, on, 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 I, I should say, sort of compounded suffering on top of what. Uh, the, the people might have naturally experienced without government intervention. Um, and what, one of the things that, that I that I think of as, as, as sort of a unintended consequence kind of response, uh, because it, and, and it's not unintended at the bigger level. Like they know they know what's going on, but they said we're going to prevent price gouging. So we're going to make sure that uh, if you bring water bottles into New Orleans with drinking water you can't charge more than 50 cents per bottle. Well, guess what? 
now there's no financial incentive for people to bring water into that area. And it's not, oh, there's no financial incentive. It means they can't do it without losing money because there are people in New Orleans or there were at the time, I guess there are again now, who would have paid $5 a bottle. They had money, they had cash, they had credit cards, debit cards. They were in a desperate situation. They needed drinking water. It made sense for in New Orleans, the price of drinking water to go up to cover the costs of importing water into that area. And instead, government said no. So you had mass shortages as a result. You had people dying and suffering needlessly because of what was well. Into, well, let's keep the price of water down in New Orleans. Like, no, you need to let the price of water go up in New Orleans because the demand is there. You need to let people express that demand. You're Instead, you're forcibly intervening between someone who wants to pay five dollars uh, for a bottle of water and someone in a neighboring state who if they could charge five dollars could bring it because then they could cover gas they could cover expenses they could cover the getting away from their job during that time i know this is sort of this is like that that just yes bear with the nerdy libertarian economic analysis because it's so important to understanding why these interventions won't work in the future o'donnell for Liberty Wayne, and again on YouTube, people still don't remember when the Massachusetts National Guard was going door to door in New Orleans, confiscating guns after Katrina. Of course, thank you for that other historical reminder. Oh, well, we have to stop the looting, might be the cry now, but it's going to be uh, an escalation of statism that is going to really hurt poor people disproportionately. And so that's where my sympathies go out. If, if you are near New Orleans, if there's something that you can do to get more involved in terms of that immediate logistical relief for people who might need truckloads of drinking water, uh, of toilet paper, of, of paper towels, just people who can bring in truckloads from neighboring communities. Uh, if you see opportunities like that, please take them. I, I hope that you can do that as charity without the economic incentive uh, but uh, especially right now in New Orleans, there is uh, a need because people are hurting one way or another. Wall Street Journal. All right, we go now to our COVID block. Do I have to show we took the COVID vitamins? Do I, I don't have any COVID vitamins. Do I have COVID vitamins? I have I have an empty chillum. I can take a resin. All right. I'm not. Wait, do I? I have. I have crumbs. I have emergency Emergency COVID vitamins. And just to remind everybody why we call it, why we call cannabis COVID vitamins. It's kind of a joke about the uh, the censorship that we've experienced over this last year and a half since we started talking about COVID, which remember was the impetus for bringing the show back. And again, I, 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 I'll digress for one other quick producer's note because we are we have committed to doing this. We are shifting formats. Uh, next Tuesday with David Limbrick, the Australian member of parliament as our guest. Um, wait a second. Did Joey steal all my lighters too? No way. No way. All right. I got, I got the torch lit in here. Um, anyway, with, with David Limbrick, we are very excited to have David Limbrick on, uh, next Tuesday. Australian member of parliament who has been standing up to the COVID lockdowns. And um, that's going to be our last show in this format. And then we're going to take a little break and come back as a, as a weekly show 
going uh, four hours Wednesday evenings. And, and I think about like Justin, like Justin's a busy dude. He's an activist. I love when he comments here, but I think uh, if we make this a weekly event, especially right. And, and you can join us Wednesday nights to be here live. We're going to make sure that we have a full hour in that four hour show for callers. So I think what we're going to do, we're going to do an hour. Well, we're, we're playing with the format a little bit. One of the things that is afforded to us with this longer format is more planning with guests and blocks and having guests on subject after covering a new subject. So we're going to be doing a lot more of that, a lot more production quality and effort per minute of the show. So um, with that, we are ready with the studio chilling. Weed every day. All right. And with that, so we call these COVID vitamins for a number of reasons. One is to, to make fun of the, it's, it's, it's a religion now, isn't it? COVID, COVID the COVID religion. Can we call it just COVID? I, I've been trying to, you know, it's, it's, it's like a sect of statism, right? Or, or it's the new, it's like Vatican 2.0, statism 2.0 is, is COVIDism. You know, the belief in this COVID mythology and trusting, all, it's, it, but it's not just, it's not just believe the COVID mythology because even the COVID mythology, you know, varies. And we have headlines that I'm going to cover today where it's like, I got censored for saying this like a week ago or, or well, in this case, it's been, it's been about a month. Um, you know, I got censored for saying this stuff about COVID a month ago. Uh, COVID cult care. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I kind of want to reduce it to a shorter word that's more practical. So can we call it COVIDism? You're a COVIDist. I'm sorry, I'm not a COVIDist. I, 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 I understand reality, but I don't take it to the religious faith level. I'm a realist. I'm not a COVIDist, right? So I, I don't know if that's the, the language that, that will catch on, but I think we kind of, I, I want something to hold on to like that to be able to use to, to describe COVID as, as this religion. Uh, but one of the things that the COVID religion dictates is that we don't look at treatment and therapy scientifically instead we take the authority's word as dictated by pharmaceutical companies as the word of god and then and believe that pharmaceuticals and ventilators are the only legitimate interventions for covid and and anything like like being healthy like not being obese like not having other other chronic conditions that are by lifestyle habit choice i mean again covid deaths trended two ways one to the elderly, as we know, where the statistics were manipulated to basically say that anybody dying with COVID died from COVID. And it was a lot of people who were going to die anyway from natural causes or of that age. Uh, yeah, Ed Vallejo did dumbassery. Uh, but no, specifically, I, 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 the other one was obesity. And like uh, until I hear people like if you're saying, hey, COVID is a problem, take the vaccine. Oh, and by the way, let me just as much say be fit, eat right take care of yourself, don't be obese, manage your chronic conditions carefully if you have them, you know, do what you can if you have diabetes to, you know, with lifestyle changes rather than medication overcome. But that's not what they're saying because who are we talking about? We're talking about the people pushing pharmaceutical interventions. So uh, cannabis 
uh, one of the myths about cannabis, I mean, aside from the, so one of the reasons we, we like calling cannabis COVID vitamins is that uh, the people telling you that, you know, the vaccines are safe and COVID is dangerous are the same ones who have been telling you and still technically on the books at the FDA say that marijuana is a schedule one substance, which means it has zero medical value. So these people have zero credibility with me. Obviously, I don't put any stake in what they have to say. But one of the specific myths about cannabis that I love, I love pointing out. And, you know, Joey, we got to bring back the hashtag lit and fit. Although I, I don't know. I don't people I don't people care. But hashtag lit and fit at the end of all my gym pictures that, that we used to post uh, that, that would say, you know, just a reminder. Yes, I smoke weed before I work out. And it's a great performance enhancing drug because it makes lifting more enjoyable. And I love it. And I dance around the gym and I'm enthusiastic about the sensuality of exercise and, and, and enjoying being in my body and, and being playful with it. Right. Uh, and the, the myth is that being stoned makes you sedentary and therefore more likely to be overweight. So there's this, this there's, there's a false stereotype of the stoner being, and, and obviously this is kind of being overcome. It's, it's silly for me to like rail against the stereotype at this point, because it's been pretty well accepted as, 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 as bullshit. But uh, it, the, the false stereotype of the fat, lazy stoner, but even then, there are a lot of people who are anti-cannabis today who hold on to the myth that, well, if it, well, cannabis slows you down, it's probably on average going to make you fatter than the average person, right? No, no. And we covered this like a year ago. They finally, there was a study that said, no, the average cannabis user has a thinner waistline by that hardcore objective medical metric. How big is your waistline? The average cannabis user was smaller than the average non-cannabis user. And uh, therefore, we highly recommend as part of our campaign to distribute misleading medical information about COVID in order to get censored on YouTube, we wanna make sure that you take your COVID vitamins. Uh, obviously, what we, we, we advocate is safe, conscientious, science, evidence-based drug use and, and, and being conscientious of how it affects your life and your health. Too unique. I feel much more active and want to adventure through the world when my fat ass gets stoned. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Justin O'Donnell for Liberty on YouTube. Meanwhile, LSD and MDMA are getting clinical trials to treat PTSD and depression. Yeah. So we're coming out of this, obviously very exciting, but uh, don't forget to take your COVID vitamins. Uh, so WSJ.com, Wall Street Journal. How could Burning Man get weirder when it's in your living room? The annual desert ritual goes virtual. Participants wear headsets, create av avatars, and mingle at home. They're even simulating waiting in traffic. Uh, so it's it's kind of cool to see that this is going on. I, I'm gonna wait, you know, to, to to pass judgment. But yeah, Burning Man got weirder. Thank you. COVID hysteria. Uh, but I would take this, like, I, I used to have respect for the, I, I shouldn't say I don't respect, I mean, of course, I respect the Burning Man people as human beings, as artists, as as as, as activists, as creative people, as, as much as uh, there are certain things I'm, I may disagree with within the, the Burning Man ethos. But COVID, you shut down your outdoor event at this point because of COVID and went virtual. 
<sighs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things it says in the story here about one of the virtual attendees, he and thousands of others encountered an hours-long delay getting in Sunday after the organizers programmed a rainstorm to replicate one a few years ago that left the playa a mess. Um, I, I, this is gonna be, it's gonna be interesting to read the reviews of this when it's done. Also from Wall Street Journal. Uh, oh wait, first another one from O'Donnell. The regional burns are still happening. I'm going to the regional burn here in New Hampshire in a couple of weeks. Oh, interesting. So the regional is this? I guess send me a link about this. I'd love to cover this, or if you want to just explain it in another comment. But I, I would want to know what. So there are regional burns, like because Burning Man went virtual this year, they're doing regional events that are still in-person events with with actual burns. I mean, I that's that's awesome. I would. If the effect of if the real legacy of this is that Burning Man goes local, <laughs> and it's like, well, there's there's like, I, I, there's a Burning Man in Sedona, you know, I I might be more likely to go actually. Anyway, we got to get through some headlines. Uh, Wall Street Journal: Kids head back to school and bring them COVID 19s and bring COVID 19s mental health scars with them. They'll be met by additional counselors, plans for mental health screening. And new programs to help tackle anxiety and depression. So um, this, this of course, reinforces the cure is worse than the disease narrative. But I'm, it, it, it's kind of a silver lining, one, that they can't sweep this element of things under the rug in this day and age. You know, there's there's just kind of a national awareness. If, if childhood depression skyrockets, if prescription skyrockets, they're not going to be able to hide some of the statistics of the cure being worse than the disease. And the silver lining in that is that there's this awareness. And so it won't be as bad as a lot of the, you know, lockdown fear mongers suggested. Although I still think uh, that this is, this is, well, it's acknowledging that this was a traumatic experience for children, children to go through. And in many ways still is. Um, but I, I think the bigger silver lining is still that, uh, you know, we could, have a, a lot more people interested in checking out of the government education system entirely and, and, and doing some form of, um, you know, but I, I say homeschooling because I'm a fan of unschooling. I think there's a, there's a libertarian answer that is not homeschooling or public or government or private or whatever. Unschooling is the concept of allowing a child to guide their own education and as parents empower them, however you can. And a lot of this is, to basic principles that John Taylor Gatto has laid out that I, that I'm a big fan of. Um, but like, you, you know, you put kids, you want kids to learn how to read. You don't put them in cemetery row seating and make them do drills. You put them in a room with an older kid playing a video game that you have to read to know how to play. And then they want to learn how to read and you apply that principle throughout uh, their life. And, 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 and this is, so this is unschooling and, and it's definitely not homeschooling, but homeschooling is sort of the, physical manifestation of it that, that, that I think is easier for people to understand. So I don't know. I, I say unschooling um, because that's what I mean. That's what I'm an advocate for in the bigger picture for education um, is that you apply libertarian principles. I mean, if you, if you just took uh, coercion out of education, right, it, it would already be a significant shift towards unschooling principles. But I think every parent by 
homeschooling has the opportunity to apply unschooling principles. And that might mean letting your kid go to government school for six months, you know, because they want to experience that for one semester. And I've seen, uh, you know, a handful of kids of friends go through experiences like that and be like, yeah, yeah, one semester was enough, not going back. Uh, ABC News. COVID-19 live updates, vaccine protection against hospitalization is dropping slightly, CDC says. And again, if, if, if you had said this a month ago before the, oh, the vaccine's wane in effectiveness became part of the COVIDist narrative, you know, you would get censored. I got censored for saying stuff like that. I can't remember. I don't think I said that one in particular. I don't think I can't say I told you so on vaccines will will wane but i did call it on yeah you're gonna they're gonna be pushing for uh you're gonna need another vaccine and another vaccine and another vaccine and um they've got us on or they got a lot of people on the treadmill now and and as i predicted with variants as the excuse you're gonna need your annual booster shot and this is gonna kind of fade into i i I hate to say fade into the background now because it's sort of fading, but it keeps coming back and flaring up. Is this, you know, the new normal that there will always be COVID flare-ups or flare-ups of statism uh, around COVID? I don't know. And 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 that's kind of scary. But I think with the vaccines in particular, uh, well, right now we see, uh, I got to get through these headlines, get to some of these numbers, but they're saying at, at most, like their official number, 60-something percent, 61-ish percent of Americans have been vaccinated. And he's like, well, you're really, you think you're going to bully the other 40% of us into this? And I, I, I don't think your number's that high, first of all, and I don't think you're capable of that. Anyway, Bloomberg at MSN.com, EU to reimpose travel curbs on US amid rise in COVID cases. This is one of those things, it's like a flare up now, massive international travel restrictions. Silver lining, perhaps, in the way that Babylon is crumbling around the government-run education system. Our next headline from APNews.com. Hostile school board meetings have members calling it quits. And this is over masks and lockdowns and distancing, all sorts of different educational-related uh, COVID policy. And, um, yeah, uh, it, it starts pretty dramatic here. And the narrative is, oh, these COVID protesters are bad. A Nevada school board member said he had thoughts of suicide before stepping down amid threats and harassment. And I go, you know what? If you're part of the government school system, I don't mean like maybe an individual educator or a janitor or, um, you know, a, 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 a lunch lady. Right. But if, if you're on the school board or you're a, a principal or administrator of the system that forces children into an education education system against their will that leads children that has promoted all kinds of childhood suicide and you and now you're getting a tiny taste of your own medicine in this i'm not inclined to be especially sympathetic i am but if, if you if, if you take this as a moment to quit and and go yeah the, the, this whole idea of coercive education is wrong cool uh hawaiinewsnow.com customers will need to show proof of vaccination or negative test to enter long list of Oahu businesses. Another another flare up in Hawaii. Although um, I, I will say we have one positive note to end our COVID block on here from Reuters. Doctors orders 
nature prescriptions see rise amid pandemic. And, uh, it, you know, man, tra- like this weekend, we, you know, Joey and me driving to Colorado and back, um, seeing people in their cars alone, wearing a mask, seeing people walking alone outside in a mask. Yesterday at the gym in Flagstaff, there were like three or four people out of 20 who were in there at, at, at the time uh, or over the, over the time that I was in there lifting, uh, wearing masks. And then taking that one of them took it like one of them was a young woman who uh, was using a, a piece of equipment. And I, you know, for somewhat distance, you know, got her attention by she had headphones and waving her. And, and she, and I said, Hey, you, you got any, how much you got left on this machine? And she pulled her mask off to talk to me. And I'm like, why are you doing this? Anyway, we're going to get to our guests in just a minute. We're not going to get to our Afghanistan block before the interview. So quick check in with co-host Ed. Any comments we missed or critical points you got to add there, sir? You're you're muted. Uh, D. Vincent W. says COVID quarantine will be a normal and people who resist will be killed. I, I don't think it's going to get to that. I'm not that pessimistic. I just put that up because I tend to agree with that's where we're going. Maybe we aren't there yet, but, you know, if you look behind you, you can generally see where you're going. <laughs> uh, I, well, when has it been that bad in, in history that I, I – Adam, for us poor folk, it's always been that bad, okay? It's always been one thing or another to keep us down. And and when they're done with this, they'll make up something else. All right, well, this is a perfect perfect setup for our guest and and potentially a a debate among libertarians. Um, But, yeah... Keep the uh, we're we're gonna get into this. I, I want uh, I want some audience interaction for this interview. If sure. if you have questions, uh, this is this is gonna be for libertarians who care about the definition of libertarianism. I think this might this might be a hot one. So okay. keep the comments coming. Ed's gonna keep them coming. Without further ado, <clears throat> our guest today is Jason Brennan, the Robert J. and Elizabeth. Flanagan, family professor of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, which is a nice, long, very credible academic title. Congratulations. But more importantly, to to his libertarian credentials here, he's the author of 15 books, including Libertarianism, what everyone needs to know, Why Not Capitalism, Against Democracy. Oh, so we're getting to some like hardcore shit here, right? Uh, this, I mean, the, the Hoppians are salivating. What? He also wrote a book against democracy? No way. All right. Uh, this is, by the way, I'm, I'm making a very nerdy insight. This this interview is going to be super inside baseball, isn't it? Uh, super nerdy inside baseball reference to uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe's famous book, Democracy, the God That Failed, which has seen a resurgence in meme lord shit poster enthusiasm, at least in, in recent years. Um Next in his in his titles here in defense of openness, why global freedom is the humane solution to global poverty. His books have been translated uh, 25 times into 14 languages. 
He specializes in the intersection of politics, philosophy, and economics at Georgetown. He's currently overseeing a $2.1 million grant investigating social entrepreneurship and effective altruism, which, of course, I'm very excited about. I'm a fan of, of, of that kind of uh, you know, angle and analysis, and especially right now in, in COVID, looking at, at how that is, uh, how there's a, an opening for, for application. Uh, but of course, we are going to challenge him on the title that pissed everybody off. Uh, by everybody, I mean all of us libertarians, of course, a libertarian case for mandatory vaccination. So um, I, 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 let's see, um, Professor, Professor Brennan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So did 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 uh, did I miss anything in in your introduction there? I mean, we could talk about my batting average or my guitar collection, but I think that's the uh, the main stuff. Okay. All right. Well, um, I, I, what what mo like like first? I want to ask about how you came to this uh, acad uh, position in academia as a libertarian. Um, I thought Walter Block was the only one who could pull this off, and yet here you are. Uh, it, it, was this hard? Was is, is this rare? And and what motivated you uh, to to be a libertarian in academia and and uh, such a prolific author? Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, you know, it is true that in academia uh, there is discrimination against people who have different points of view. Um, there's empirical evidence of that. It is harder to make it in academia as a libertarian than it is if you're like a left liberal. You have to publish more and publish better, and it's more difficult to publish because people disagree with you. But the reality is, uh, at least in philosophy and a few other fields, there is a, a pretty sizable number of libertarian-minded people. Uh, the number one ranked program in political philosophy uh, in the English-speaking world is the University of Arizona, and it has a bunch of libertarian people there. So you can make it. Um, as for me, I just, you know, I actually remember the time, the date and the moment when I realized I wanted to be an academic. I was uh, cleaning up my college, uh, my, my fraternity house room. Um, I had to like go and work in a factory for a few months uh, to go make enough money to go back to college. And when I was there, I was like cleaning up all these books and I hadn't been majoring in philosophy and I just had all these philosophy books. And I'm like, what does it take to become a philosopher? Like, how do you do that? And I Googled and I found out you get to go to grad school, not only for free, but they pay you to go. And I just made a decision. That was May 2nd, 2000. I made a decision. That's what I was going to do. And then I did it. Um, but it mostly it involves just being able to like write a lot, write a lot, write frequently, put a lot of things out for publication. And if you can do that, you can make it. So what, what, what was the point though for you other than okay i get to say i'm a philosopher obviously there was some hope of having influence or an impact right yeah uh i mean i wish i could say that when i was 20 and made that decision that i was like trying to save the world or i had all these high-minded ideas but it was really just thinking at the time what would be a satisfactory life for me um and i thought I like working in, on ideas. I like playing with ideas, like thinking about this stuff. I like writing. If I can spend most of my time doing that, I'll have a good life. Later, <laughs> I started worrying about the high-minded things. You know, So one thing that happened to me was when I, when I got this job at Georgetown, um, I'd been out of academia for a few years. I was working at Brown University before, but I switched over to a business school and I started learning a crap ton about uh, 
um, psychology of learning, what actually makes people learn. And I realized that the majority of what college professors do in the classroom doesn't do much for the students. And so I radically revised my teaching style, in particular, what kinds of projects I have students do in order to facilitate active learning and get them to get something out of college that they're normally missing. Um, but so I wish I could tell you that when I was 20, that I was thinking in high minded terms about making an impact in a positive difference. But no, I was navel gazing and thinking selfishly back then. I think I've moved towards impact later. That's a nice admission. I, I want to I want to go a couple of ways with this. But would you would, would you have any advice for someone if, if you're you're 20? How, how if I may ask and how old are you now? What, what, you know, when you were 20, would you what advice would you give yourself if you could? Go back in time. Yeah, it's funny you ask that. Uh, I've written a lot of books, and one of the books is about how to make it in academia. Uh, so it's called Good Work If You Can Get It, How to Succeed in Academia. And it is a book of that advice, including what are the stats? How likely is it that you'll actually succeed? You know, the overwhelming majority of people who start a PhD program want to become a full-time college professor, and the overwhelming majority of them will fail. Like maybe one out of five will ever get that job and only maybe one out of a hundred will get like a particularly cushy job like the one that I have. So uh, I think I think actually my 20 year old self did everything right. Uh, it worked out pretty well. But uh, but it is true that a lot of people in my position um, make self-destructive choices that impair their ability to get what they want. So while defining libertarianism for us as you understand it now can you take us through how you came to where you are now and and, and perhaps how i mean were, were you a fully fully philosophically formed libertarian at 20 or or has your experience as an author and in academia uh influenced that over the years i've definitely changed my mind about many things but i think when i was 17 i was a type of libertarian you know, when I was 20, I was a type of libertarian. Now I'm a type of libertarian. There are things I've changed my mind on, you know, so I learned a lot about the economics of immigration and so on uh, quite a while ago. So I think if you'd met me at 17, I might have had the view like, well, if you have a welfare state, you can't have open borders. And then by the time I was like 20, I didn't think that anymore. Um, you know, there's certain elements of I, I'm, I don't consider myself a left libertarian, um, but I think there's certain elements of things that they say that might be correct that we should take on board that I didn't necessarily believe when I was say 20. Um, so I do change my mind, uh, even my attitude towards democracy. When I was like 22, I thought obviously democracy is the most just system. Now I think at best you can say democracy might be better than some of the other forms of government. But obviously if we were, if we were morally decent people, we would be anarchists. And I don't mean if we were angels, we'd be anarchists. I mean, if everyone was as good as I am, we'd be anarchists and I'm no saint. So I think, I think in a way, democracy is always a moral failing. States are always a moral failing. So I become maybe somewhat more radical on that stuff than I was when I was 20 years old. But I was definitely, I've definitely stayed within the boundaries of that kind of ideology, even if I'm not orthodox in every aspect of it. So when you were 17 and identified as a libertarian, uh, I mean, it's, it sounds like, uh, like for, for example, the borders and the welfare state issue, a lot of those are th oh, in intellectual property is another it was sort of like the big one for me mm -hmm. uh, to be like, well, I get the principles, but my understanding is superficial. And, and, and when your understanding is superficial, you don't know that your understanding is superficial. And then you see because you don't know that there's this other layer uh, underneath it until you get into it, like like mining through solid earth. And then you go, oh, wait, intellectual property is a coercive government racket. Wait, restrictions on 
freedom of movement inevitably lead to economic and political consequences that are, and then you, that study of economics leads you to a more principally consistent worldview. Um, so is, is that fair to describe that process? And if that's the case, then what, what would you recommend to maybe people who are new to the movement in, in, uh, in pursuing that deeper understanding and more consistent worldview? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, you really should understand the basics of political science, the basics of economics, the basics of philosophy, and not just the views as expressed by people in your ideology, but like why other people who are reasonable might disagree with you. And I don't mean that everyone who disagrees with you is reasonable. I mean, the, the typical person of almost every ideology, uh, frankly, does it to fit in. They're not really that interested in ideas, et cetera, et cetera. But, but reasonable. yeah, but you need to understand like, like, what do we have to say? Like, how do governments work? How does the economy work? Like, why do people, why would a smart person have a different ideology than you? What's like the best argument for Marxism? What's the best argument for like the welfare state and so on? What's the best argument for all these other things? Uh, and when you do that, like you not only become better at thinking yourself, you might change your mind about stuff, but you become better at thinking yourself. You, you understand the issues more and you might also come up with better arguments for your own position because Sometimes people who disagree with you share the same values, but they're just making a mistake about how things work or how to understand something. You know, like an example would be, uh, you know, a lot of people on the left say freedom. It's not just about non-interference. It's not just about making sure no one pushes you around. Freedom is also about the capacity to achieve your ends. That's what freedom means. And as a linguistic matter, in fact, in the English language, the word freedom has been used that way for like a thousand years. So it is true that that is a, it's not just an ideologically loaded conception of freedom. It is one of the things that people use the word freedom to mean. But then they say, so if freedom is about the capacity to achieve your ends, obviously we have to be socialist because that's the thing that will guarantee to you that everyone has the capacity to achieve their ends. And one response is to say, oh no, you're not using the word freedom the right way. And then they stop listening and they walk away. A better response I think is to say, actually as an empirical matter, the kind of freedom that you're talking about, meaning people have the actual ability and efficacy and power and, and have enough wealth and stuff to achieve their different goals and be, live an authentic life is found in market capitalist societies and basically nowhere else. So if you do care about that value, that's actually a reason to favor my side, not your side. Right. It's, and that's a much more persuasive argument to me. You have to show them the data, but it's much more persuasive than just saying, nah, you're using the word wrong. You know, because yeah. at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter. They'll be like, okay, fine. Call it sliberty. I still think sliberty matters. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think that my time in the anti-war movement, being being surrounded by lefties as kind of one libertarian, confident in making the ethical case, but being around other and this is this is, I think what you said is really important also to humanizing our our communications approach as a movement or just people who care about ideas that to us are about justice and principles, uh, but but that I had respect for them as fellow anti-war activists. You know, mm -hmm. I started from that premise of you're not a troll, you're not getting paid to do this. You're, you, this is something that you passionately, genuinely, personally believe in. And if I'm going to have any effect in changing that, I, I have to understand it. And and oftentimes. Yeah, libertarians miss that. So I, I do, yes, I okay, Professor, I, I am setting you up here because I do want to challenge you when you say a libertarian case for mandatory vaccination. Define libertarian. Uh, 
I mean, you can use it as like an umbrella term. Libertarians are people who think that every person ought to have in a very extensive sphere of personal liberty, which includes economic liberty, civil liberties, and so on, rights of free speech, rights to determine your lifestyle, that the sphere ought to be protected at a very high cost. And it's very difficult to justify any kinds of restrictions on that. So that's when you use that as like a definitional term or umbrella term that includes a whole bunch of different people. Uh, my personal way of thinking of what libertarians are really about is what I call uh, the moral parity thesis. Moral, what libertarians are, are people who think that like uh, the fact that you have a government office or that you were elected by somebody does not really imbue you with any special power or any special rights. We really do have rights and they don't go away just because you have power. Everyone ultimately fundamentally has the same moral status. Right. I think if you apply that, if you apply that idea consistently, which very few people do, that will lead you to libertarian conclusions. Uh, and I think I had a book that was on this. It was actually, it was, you know, it's called, uh, uh, I forget the name of the book. It's called When All Else Fails. It's about resisting the state. Like the questions are things like, when can you shoot a cop? That's like what the book is about. And uh, I, I had a joking preface in the original version of the book, which I ended up taking out, where I said, a lot of what political philosophy has been historically is about rationalizing evil. Uh, and what I mean by that is it's been about trying to justify the idea that some people have permission to do things that the typical person doesn't have, and they acquire that permission in virtue of holding an office. So I, I just don't find that very persuasive. I don't find the arguments to the contrary persuasive. Uh, so in a way, I think libertarianism is just thinking we're all equal in meaning it. Okay, uh, I, I a minus, a minus, professor. Uh, good, good answer, good answer. No, I, I actually very much appreciate that, that you used libertarian for two definitions because that's what I would have done and say, like, look, I like to use libertarian as the inclusive term of anybody who wants to move in the direction of more freedom. I personally define freedom specifically in a way that leads me to this universal ethics standard. I think you would have got an A or an A plus if you had mentioned voluntarism and or the non-aggression principle. But I think you meant that, right? Is it fair to say that that was included in, in what you articulated there? Yeah, I mean, whenever you give whenever you give a try to give a definition of an ideology where there's a lot of disagreement inside the ideology, you have to give kind of something generic that captures everybody. So asking like what libertarians believe is a little bit like asking like, what do left liberals believe? What do socialists believe? What do others believe? You know, so you're gonna have to go to some level of abstraction. Um, and so things like the non-aggression principle, there are lots of libertarians who think that's like the central idea. Um, and there are other libertarians who think that that's maybe, even though they in effect agree with it, they don't think it's like the central foundational idea. Um, so I don't want to, I wouldn't use that as the definition, even though obviously it's important. Yeah. So to, so to me, I'm, I'm, I'm very similar. I, I, I like to describe myself as a voluntarist because to me, that is the core. That is the foundational principle. It is that, as you described, universal standard of ethics. I mean, I heard that in your use of those term, terms, which might have been more sort of mainstream, philosophically, academically acceptable and and and, and a, a more, uh, maybe better messaging even than what we've been doing in the past, making it about ideology as opposed to simply making it about like, no, it's just, we're just talking about universalizing ethics instead of, as opposed to exempting government from it somehow. Yeah. So with, with, with that being said, uh, how the hell do you twist that into the headline, a libertarian case for mandatory vaccination? Yeah, I mean, 
one of the things I was wondering in that is, would there ever be a case where like a libertarian minded person could advocate something like mandatory vaccinations? And when I wrote that paper, I didn't know that we were going to have COVID come out. I mean, if I did, I would have like, you know, use my magic powers to stop it. Um, I haven't gone on TV, even though I've been offered to get on there. Cause like I've had, I've had TV studios call me and be like, can you come on and, and advocate for mandatory vaccination for people for COVID right now? And well, I've, refu- and I've refu- take, no, no, then sir, with all due respect, there's nothing wrong with taking an interview uh, under the false premise and then punking your host and saying, no, actually what I really believe is this and you're all full of shit. I, yeah. I just, please consider taking those opportunities. Yeah, man, maybe I should in the future. Um, so I'm, I don't think that that paper is giving an argument in favor of mandatory COVID vaccinations right now, uh, because I think the COVID situation is different, but basically this is the concern. Uh, at the end of the like libertarians, you can't have an argument that says it benefits the public good. Therefore, you should be forced to do it. You can't have an argument that says it benefits you. Therefore, you should be forced to do it. Those are illib- not just not libertarian, but illiberal concerns. We don't force people to promote the public good. We don't force people to promote their own good. We don't use paternalistic justifications. The real concern, and this is actually a puzzle for if you haven't thought about this as libertarian, you have to think about this uh, and read, read, by the way, Anarchy State Utopia. There's some pretty good discussion of this from Robert Nozick. Uh, The real concern is we impose risk upon one another all the time. That doesn't mean that everything we're doing counts as an externality. It doesn't mean that in principle, everything can be regulated. But at the end of the day, we're imposing risk upon each other. We're driving down the street. We're walking by one another. Uh, Even like, you know, Robert Nozick has this thought experiment. He's like, you know, if I take a gun and it has 10,000 chambers and one has a bullet and I spin it and shoot it at you, I only have a one in 10,000 chance of hurting you. Does that count as an unjust imposition of risk? At what point how much risk and danger am I allowed to pose upon other people before in principle, other people can intervene. Now you as like the reader, like the listener, you probably think there's something to this. Like if I just walk down the street and start throwing baseballs as hard as I can into a crowd, even if I don't hit anybody, you probably think my action was wrong because it had a pretty high chance of, of hurting somebody. So ultimately what that paper argues is that you can at least imagine cases where there's a certain group of people, say small children with like whooping cough who, uh, cannot be vaccinated against a known disease where we have a vaccine. And if a large group of people refuse to get vaccinated, what they will do as a collective is impose risk onto this, these third parties. Like we will pop, we, we don't ever know who's going to actually get it. Like, but we know that people in this group have a high chance of catching disease and spreading it onto others. If you have a situation like that, then I think you could in principle mandate vaccination. But then I also say in the paper, this presupposes some things which might not be true. We know the vaccine works. Uh, the people who are possible victims cannot be vaccinated. Uh, we have a good way of identifying who's like the population that's at risk. And there aren't better alternatives um, to getting them to take the vaccine too. So just, just paying people, right? Like, you, you know, instead of coercing people, you can always try paying them. So ultimately the paper is like a, in principle, could you accept this as a libertarian kind of person? It wasn't meant to be like a, hey, we should have mandatory vaccines all the time right now. Right. Okay. So uh, yeah, I should have pointed out this was published in 2018 and yeah. I was going to haunt you in kind of an interesting way. Uh, but Which means it was written in like 2015 and it takes forever for things to come out. Right. Just that's how I can, it's like right. things are slow. It's one of, it's one of those papers. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's not just a blog post. It was it was really well thought out and and, and very deliberate. Um, 
But I, I want to point out two things in response to that. First, to, to back up something important that you said is an intellectual premise of this examination that a lot of libertarians miss, especially the sort of young, simplistic, enthusiastic libertarians who want to just apply self-ownership, property rights, non-aggression principle, and forget the fact that the application of those principles relies on social consent. Like you say, okay, well, as a Lockean property rights homesteader, I mix my labor with the soil here on 10 acres and I put up a fence around it and I can say, this is gardenia, this is my homestead. But if I put up a fence around a million acres and said, that's mine too, society by consent is going to say, screw you. You didn't mix enough of your labor with the soil for us to respect that as your property. Just because you put up a fence around it doesn't make it yours. So right away, there's a even the concept, like you can say, well, I earned it, I traded for it, it's a product of my body, my labor, I own it, absolutely. But at some point along the way, even in claiming natural resources, there was a subjective concept of property rights accepted by the consent of society. And so I, I wanna reinforce your premise here in asking this, but now I, I have to disagree with one of the key components that you just laid out of this article, which is the imposition of risk. If they have a right to disassociate, as, as you said in your example, people who can't, vulnerable individuals who can't get a vaccine, people who don't get the vaccine are imposing a risk on them. I say, no, you don't have a right to impose that responsibility on that person to not impose that risk because the person who is at risk has the right to remain disassociated or distanced from the the biological risk carrier right uh so are you saying something like let, let's just imagine for the sake of argument you have pertussis right and uh so you're you have whooping cough and you're going around spreading it in a in a place and they just don't have a policy like i don't know it could be like a grocery store so you might say like the grocery store has the right to kick you out if they know about it but right. frankly they're probably not checking everyone who's walking in um they just have an open policy like we let people in unless like there's some obvious reason not to um, and then you walk by a baby and the baby gets pertussis, right? And as a result dies. So you could say, well, the parent should have known better than to take the baby uh, to the store, like, or to a restaurant. They could just keep the baby at home um, and try to protect them. But I don't know. Why, why not instead say something like, look, you are kind of like a person walking around with a loaded gun, shooting the gun off in every direction. And if you hit somebody, which it's, it's only a probability thing whether you do, it, you're at fault for that. You're blameworthy and you're the one that should be stopped. Right. That's that's kind of my worry there. It's like we can always say to people disassociate. We can always say you can stay home, but we stick with a bunch of other things like that, that you're the one imposing the risk. Like just imagine um, I fly to a like we, I find that there's a another planet out there full of biological agents and using my teleportation device that I keep in that closet back there. I teleport there. I drink the water. I breathe in the air and I come back to Earth and I walk around. Now, I have no idea. I could be infected with all sorts of weird diseases. And as a result of that, as I walk around, I'm spreading these diseases to other people. I, have, I don't even know. In this, in this thought experiment, I don't even know if I'm infected. For all I know, I, nothing happened to me. For all I know, I'm, I'm infected with these weird diseases that are going to be the equivalent of like smallpox, for which no one on earth has any immunity. And if I said, okay, well, all those people, they could have stayed home. They had the right to disassociate from me. I just went to the grocery store. And if I infected 6,000 people who then in turn infect another 20,000 people, they could have just stayed home. 
in cases like that, it seems like, no, you're the one that should have quarantined. You're the one that should have taken. You are the one who incurred the cost, who created the risk. You're the one that created the danger. You should probably be the one that bears the cost of that risk rather than others. Let me see if I can apply that to the current social standards then. Because current, so like pre-COVID, at least pre-COVID, the standard was, hey, if you're sick, like if you have a cold or a flu, try to stay home and not spread it. But if you have to go out, not a big deal. Wash your hands a lot. Try not to cough on people. If you're going to be within six feet of people, oh, I didn't say within six feet, but it's sort of like if you're going to be close to people, you know, let them know, hey, by the way, I'm sick. You might not want to kiss me. Oh, you might not want to share my drink. But we kind of, we the acceptance was that going out into the global human petri dish and interacting with other humans is that if you don't have any special disease that makes you break out in green warts or drop dead all of a sudden, that, you know, that's an acceptable risk. And we mitigate it with those sort of polite measures, but it's within the realm of acceptable risk within the society, right? Is that, is that fair as an analysis or application of, of what you're saying? Yeah, and, and one reason I've been, you know, people have been saying, what about COVID? Uh, and, I, and like, does your argument work for COVID? And I think generally speaking, it doesn't, um, you know, because the, the paper basically says, in order if to a bunch of conditions held, it would. So outside of the realm of where we have agreed, society has agreed to, to apply these principles as I described. It's an acceptable risk, but we expect that you stay home. If you have special knowledge that you've got something freaky, you have a responsibility to quarantine. But freaky means of an outsized risk or health threat than, than, than we already apply these principles to, which is where you have to say, no, COVID doesn't do that. And this is why as a libertarian, I'm tempted to argue the facts rather than the principles sometimes, although the, it's still important to argue principles in a lot of cases where it's, it's like you said, if Safeway doesn't want to let you know the grocery store because you're coughing, that's their private property. If they want to require masks, I, in principle, respect the private property right to determine your policy, except that now a lot of it is government facilities, government pop, uh, policy imposition on the commons. And so I, I want, as a libertarian, to acknowledge these, these tough challenges that you raise to a simplistic libertarian analysis of COVID policy, that, oh, it's government, it's all bad, but to say, well, hypothetically, you know, at least we have to respect private property rights to, for people and businesses to set their own standards of risk. Uh, but I'm tempted to argue facts because, and I sort of need this understanding to make my argument of fact fit back into principle and say, COVID is not a special risk. We know it from even the government numbers, if you believe them, we know it from government policy. We know it from enough test cases around the world. We know it from Barack Obama has a 60th birthday party and the elites at Buckingham Palace have dinners where they don't wear masks, but the staff wear masks. This is in the realm of acceptable risk already within the global human petri dish. And that brings us back into the, the, the principles of, well, you set your own level of risk. And again, this is the one thing that I think is, is missing from the conversation and, and maybe from the analysis in your paper then is, hey, you want to protect yourself you wear a mask, you want to protect yourself, you stay home, you want to mitigate risk that that is like, I'm people with COVID, if they're spreading it, they're walking around, they're alive, they're, they're not like crawling around like zombies spitting on you, getting you, you know, getting you, you know, to have the same symptoms. 
So, uh, again, I, I put it back to you. Does, does all that square with your analysis? And do you think that that your analysis misses the the, the right to disassociate um, in, in that imposition of risk argument that you bring to, to your inflammatory headline? Yeah, uh, again, I don't think it works for COVID because I think the facts for COVID are quite different, uh, including things like, Right now, we have a vaccine that's, you know, it's not perfectly effective. It does significantly, we have some of the vaccines do significantly reduce, re, reduce your risk of getting infected or of uh, having a very severe disease. So we're kind of at the point right now where pretty much everyone who wants to be vaccinated is, except for maybe there are some children that might want to be vaccinated who aren't eligible. But for them, the risk of COVID is very, very small. The chances of it killing them or making them very sick are, you know, at and, most on par with the flu and probably significantly lower than that. So yeah. I don't think COVID is a situation right now where the kind of hypothetical argument that was in that paper would apply. I mean, that paper was just really trying to say, could even someone who has libertarian premises accept mandatory vaccination under any circumstances? And it was like, yeah, there are some circumstances if you have diseases of a certain type, risk of a certain type. Uh, and inability, including inability to disso disassociate or alternatively asking someone to disassociate is unreasonable because you're the one causing the problem, not them, et cetera. Then it was arguing, yeah, in principle, you could. It wasn't meant to be a justification for having uh, mandatory vaccines like right now with COVID um, yeah. so that you know people see that they go looking for headlines and they're looking for intellectual ammo for something that could back them up. But I think even in that paper, I identify like what what are the things that would have to be the case for even like a libertarian to endorse it? And some of them just don't apply to COVID because of things like you have the ability to protect yourself pretty significantly by getting a vaccine that strongly reduces the risk to you. It very strongly reduces the risk to you to the point where it's very difficult for you then to get to complain about people who are spreading disease in terms of you know, personal risk to you. Yeah. So I, I think what you're sort of sneaking in there that is that there is some forced association that that limits the ability to disassociate as, as a premise of is that is that sneaking in um i mean realistically speak yeah anyone right actually i'm not even sure you can do this so you don't really have the ability to disassociate i mean what are you going to do go live in the woods uh they won't let you unless you own those woods right they're they're going governance like if you go in the woods and like put up a camp like the, people, the police are going to come up and attack you right yeah. If, if you have enough money to buy 10 acres of land, then uh, $13,000 for 11 acres. Yeah. And if you can buy $13,000 worth of land in uh, 11 acres, like, are you going to be able to farm that? Are you going to be able to be support yourself on that? I mean, Henry, ha as you know, Henry Hazlitt says in economics in one lesson, like, we don't really have the ability to survive on our own. If I take this, this stupid object and ask how many people does it make tend to take to make this? It's like I'm, 50 million people. I'm all, I get your point. No, no, no. I'm all about the econ. I'm not about economic uh, separation, but I'm, I just want to point out that it, it's a, it, it, what you're almost, what, I, I, I'm not a monk on a mountaintop, right. perfectly disassociated, able to you know talk to you on this show. I understand I pencil specialization of labor, complex production and all of that. And I'm all for that intera e economic interaction. But for me, I, I think it's an important part of my libertarianism. And, and I hope you would consider this to, to have more of an attitude of personal empowerment, 
where you can change your lifestyle radically. You can step out of the matrix. I know it's hard to tell when you're stuck in academia, uh, but you you can change your lifestyle. And, and it's not about having less relationships with people or less vibrant relationships. It's about pushing out coercive relationships and having more room for voluntary relationships in your life. Uh, right. But this is where the question comes down to of, and I don't think talking about voluntary is really helping here because there's a question of like, what, what do we do about the spaces that are public? We don't have a world that's literally divided up into everything is a private land, a private land, or everyone is the king of their land and can decide what the rules are going to be. And even if we did, we would need to have rules about, uh, I forget the technical term for it, but like every every society that has private property develops like a rule about uh, not byways, but you know, but like that, if, but, that if, makes if, sense. Easements and rights of way. Thank you, easement, right? Easement rules. So we would still have these like semi-public spaces, even with easements. Thank you. Uh, we have to have some sort of norms that make sense about what level of risk can you impose upon other people when they're on the easements, when they're on the public land. We do have public land, right? I don't mean, and I don't want to say the following because it's public land, anything the government says goes. I definitely don't believe that. I've argued against that at great length. Um, so what counts as the voluntary acceptance there? I, generally speaking, I think the norm should be something like this. If a there has to be like a reasonable system of risk assessment and risk taking, and it should be something like the rules of risk benefit are expected to benefit all the comers there, everyone who's sort of participating in it. That's when it's reasonable. So that's why we do things like we understand that if we allow people to uh, ride cars, that 50,000 people are going to die a year. We let people pollute. You know, like you can have a really radical view of pollution as a libertarian and go, well, look, anytime you pollute, you're going to be polluting someone else's land and something. You can't do that. So therefore, that's a form of aggression. You're not permitted to do it. Uh, and that would be that's one way of applying the non-aggression principle. I mean, even right now, I'm exerting a very small gravitational pull on all of you. Am I violating <laughs> your property rights? We can't we don't want to say that because it leads to just crazy um, conclusions. So we have to have some sort of account of when we're in spaces with other people where there's not a clear decider, like it's my house, right. Right? what's going to be the level of risk we can pose upon others? Um, what point, at what point are we imposing so much risk that we are counting as aggressing? We are counting as a rights violator in virtue of the risk we impose upon others. And we have to think about it when it happens collectively, not just individually, because think about like a, a lot of actions could be done and like, like just take the following case. Like there's, we have a we have like an electrode stuck to your head, and if we press certain buttons, it will kill you. But the way this works is, it will only turn on if like fifty thousand of us press the button all at once, and it turns out that a hundred thousand of us show up to start pushing buttons. So now, for anyone who helps push the button, it's not really clear if they're the one that killed you. It's not really clear how we attribute responsibility to them. But we do want to say something like. It has to be in some way that the group is responsible for the harm that they do to you in this thought experiment. Because I want to jump ahead in this and, and, and ask one last question. But I, the reason I want to jump ahead is because I think you've made your point very well. Like, And this is another area where there is a gray area for libertarians that we have to acknowledge to get past the simplistic understanding of libertarianism. So when you point out all of these challenges to a simplistic libertarian analysis of justice and property rights, Instead of just staying in that and making that point over and over again, I go, okay, so this is the great opportunity. We get government out of the dispute resolution racket that it's in with a legal system that is not a justice system that has a punishment 
presumption as opposed to a justice presumption of make victims whole. And then we can answer all of these questions and we can figure out what imposition of risk is something that we want to address, what creates real value. And we lose all of the ways that the government legal system is holding us back from addressing conflicts in a way that is justice-based and creates real value. And then anyway, you see where I'm going with that. And yeah. that is the, the chance to present an inspiring vision. So speaking of that last question, investigating social entrepreneurship and effective altruism, what does that mean? How is it applicable to the unique historical moment we find ourselves in? Right, so uh, effective altruism is, at root, the philosophy of taking the tools of microeconomics and applying them to giving and beneficent behavior. Most people don't do that. Most people, their attitude is, if my heart's in the right place, then what I did counts as good. But effective altruism is about asking, like, are you actually making the world a better place? Do the benefits that you create through your charitable giving or charitable actions actually exceed the cost of what it took for you to do them? Um, social enterprise is closely related. What you can think of it as like this. If a traditional charity takes people in need or, or it's trying to help somebody, it makes those people beneficiaries. What a social enterprise does is makes them customers. It tries to actually produce a service that the people are willing to pay for, and it tries to make a profit off of doing so. And to a lot of people on the left, this sounds like a really evil idea. They're like, well, if you're trying to help people, why would you want to profit on them? But social enterprise has two really good arguments for this because charities such as Georgetown, where I work, face two serious problems. The management problem is a central management problem of charity is uh, if you're trying to help these people, but you're getting your money from these people, then when there's a conflict of interest between what the people who are paying want and what the people you're trying to help want, you're going to be inclined to do what's good for the donors rather than what's good for the beneficiaries. That's the management problem you see in all sorts of charities. The problem that you see uh, and the other reason to like engage in profit seeking activity is you need to have a way to know how do I, if I spend a thousand dollars on something to produce an outcome, how do I know where the outcome is worth more than the value of what it took for me to make it? The market provides a test because the, yeah. you know, on a market for you to make a profit, it means you have to take materials and goods and things that were valued at one level and turn them into something at a, that other people value at a higher level. You get to capture some of that. That's where your profit comes from. So in a way, what Social enterprise does is it uses the disciplining forces of the market to try to force the, the group itself to ensure they're actually making the world a better place rather than just doing what donors think makes the world a better place. Mm. Uh, and so a lot of what this research project is going to be about, and, and a lot of it's not going to be about research. A lot of it is literally going to be about taking students and empowering them to do this. So I've been running a project uh, previously for 10 years at Georgetown, where students come into a class of mine, a politics, philosophy, and economics course, and a few other courses I teach. And I say, your project for this semester is to think of something good to do and do it. I will give each of your groups up to $1,000 to complete this task, though it will come with strings attached in bureaucracy, which makes it, even though I hate bureaucracy and I hate regulations, I think it makes it more realistic because that's how the world works. Uh, they have to actually go through the regulations that the federal government imposes upon us. And, uh, and then they can do anything they want, but they have to prove at the end that the added value to the world, they have to ask all these difficult philosophical and economic questions about what they did. Uh, and the result is, instead of them complaining about problems and saying someone should fix it, they go out and they find real problems and solve them themselves. And that could be starting a charity, it could be fixing something on campus, it could be running an event, it could be running a business. Uh, one of the businesses that they started um, ended up grossing over $100,000 a year for a few years. And this was just a side project that they were doing while they were full-time students. Wow. 
Well, congratulations on inspiring that. That's amazing. Uh, Professor, it's been a lot of fun. It's been an enlightened conversation. How do people connect with you? Is there, are there a way you have a, a, I mean, we have your email. I don't know if that's public or uh, if, if you have a, a website destination as an author, how can people hook up with you? Yeah, if you Google uh, 200 proof liberals, uh, a few other kind of hardcore anarchist libertarians and I are running a blog there. You can see the kind of stuff what they're writing. Um, if you want to learn more about effective charities, you can look at givewell.org. Uh, and you can also just email me, Jason period Brennan at georgetown.edu, and I'm happy to ask answer questions, uh, take take abuse like some of the stuff that's in the comments over here, and whatever else you want to send my way. <laughs> that has been a lot of fun. I, I very much appreciate this, and and I think uh, voices like yours uh, and and Walter Blocks uh, in particular have been really important to my understanding of libertarianism and activism. And while oftentimes we are taking people through uh, a very simplistic understanding, and we all know the world would be a better place if everybody even had just that uh, for libertarianism. If, if we don't have the acknowledgement of the gray areas and the subjective nature uh, of what we're doing and acknowledge that we are not uniquely certain or special that way, but that we are fallible and, and, and uh, that, that we must acknowledge that room for interpretation. I think that makes us much more effective uh, in, in communicating with statists. Uh, one comment here before you go, irate samurai, the libertarian case is that consent is required. There's no such thing as mandatory vaccinations in a libertarian society. Well, that's the simplistic answer, but I think we've covered that. And I think when you put it like that, Jason would agree. All right. Well, thank right. you very much. I appreciate it. Have a good one. All right. And I uh, got a question in there as well we didn't get to uh, that I deliberately ignored uh, because he said, you know, would there be a case for, you know, the experimental mRNA, et cetera, et cetera. And I was thinking like, yeah, absolutely uh, not. I think he, he would say as I think he had made clear by the time he got that comment up that his extreme uh, hypothetical argument there definitely does not apply to COVID. And I actually, I, I hope that he takes some of those interviews. I really hope that I changed his mind about the opportunity that like, even because just to, to reiterate this point, because he wrote this hypothetical essay a year before COVID even started, uh, statists are using him to miss or are trying to use him to misrepresent libertarianism and to say that he that there is a libertarian case for mandatory vaccinations. And uh, this gives him the opportunity to be like, nah, fuck no. You guys, you guys are all statists. Uh, and and it, this is dishonest what you're doing. I think that could be amazing. The, the, the opportunity that he has, uh, although he might only get one shot, right? He goes on MSNBC once or CNN and pulls that off. And then he's blacklisted from doing mainstream media interviews forever, right? Uh, I write, Sam, I don't actually believe that. Lol, I was making fun of his argument. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Thompson Reuters. Uh, so now to our, uh, wait a second. What is this? Oh, no, though, I had our last story up about doctor's orders. Nature prescriptions see rise amid pandemic. That's another silver lining. All right, so to some status bullshit. I'm glad that, like, I have more fun, I suppose, 
analyzing COVIDiacy and COVIDism and being a voice against the hysteria and, and, and being a voice of, I hope, of reason and compassion in that than going like, oh, yeah, Afghanistan, it's fucked. Uh, but I, I was asked yesterday to do an interview for uh, RT. Um, and again, it's funny, I, I hesitate to, to play the clip like on the show because this is me on RT International, which is broadcast on YouTube, which might get pinged um, and, and get this whole two-hour podcast episode uh, taken down or something like that. Uh, but they, they wanted to do like a two-and-a-half-minute segment on uh, Joe Biden taking America through the five stages of grief in Afghanistan. I guess I can play the, So then they, they, they put me in the last, um, like, 30 seconds of this? Or no, it's the last minute. Uh, I guess I can play this, just the audio. If he succeeds in getting Americans to walk through the five stages of grief, you know, we've seen him express the denial, the pounding of the fist. There's there's an anger. He's walking away from the podium when he's asked questions about Afghanistan. There's a, there's a negotiation. Well, maybe it can be not that bad. Well, we'll see where we go with policy. There's there's a depression. And and right now it's let's walk the American people over through the end of the process to acceptance. He also said terrorism has metastasized. And there's this excuse with the global war on terror to send more troops to more countries. So I don't think this is over because Biden is doing his job as an actor. He's getting that emotional buy-in. And I am very afraid that if, if Biden successfully walks uh, Americans through this emotional process, he is going to be able to suck us in to a sustained global war on terror that could last another decade. So the, it, the, the funny thing I want to share about this me coming to this conclusion. I wonder if like I was I was led to this by a clever producer at RT, uh, RT International, uh, who said, hey, Adam, we're doing this segment. Will you join us for an interview? It's about the five stages of grief in Afghanistan and Biden. And, you know, uh, I think they just wanted me to bolster that analysis. But I had to say, well, it's not that he's going through the five stages of grief. It's that he's leading America through the five stages of grief in order to get us to the point of acceptance. And, and I, I had so much more on this. I wish that, that I had been featured for a little bit more than one minute, although they did a, a, a pretty good job. Uh, of I, We did a 15-minute interview of me speaking to the camera with no, nothing else on uh, yesterday evening, and, and they uh, it was about 15 minutes, and they cut it down to this uh, minute that, uh, from the link they sent me, it looks like it just went in this two and a half minute clip. Uh, but the epiphany that I came to, and again, I did, did, did the RT producer like lead me to this, that Biden is not taking America through an organic five stages of grief as if this is some organic phenomenon. You know, like if uh, aliens bombed New York City and everybody died and then they left and that was it like yes five stages of grief like yes let's let's grieve as 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 a global community for this loss of life um and that's what Biden's economic or his 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 emotional acting 
is intended to do is to make Americans go through that process to see the failure of the war in Afghanistan as something that we all took part in. And it's this tragedy that we should all be sad about and, and, and get to this point of acceptance of it. And I say, fuck that. We shouldn't accept it. Like, we shouldn't just accept that, that this was part of uh, just, just the, the American experience that, you know, the, that, oh, yeah, we had this bad war in Afghanistan. I was like, no, this was a war crime. And we, the American people, are victims of it as well. The perpetrators are the architects of this policy. And guess what? Joe motherfucking Biden is one of them. So I rate Samurai on YouTube. It's not over for sure. There will be a proxy war in Afghanistan. We'll invade somewhere else, maybe in Africa this time. So this, th thank you. That was the other point I was getting at here and, and that I, I kind of wish might have been included in that interview in that uh, this is, it's kind of a setup. And I don't, I don't want to make a prediction and say, well, Joe Biden said, uh, we're not going to have American troops do a job for, you know, the Afghans or fight a fight for them that they don't want to fight for themselves right away. I thought, you know what, in 1964, 11 years before the 1975 fall of Saigon with the helicopters over the embassy that Lyndon B. Johnson said, we will not send American boys nine or 10,000 miles away from home to do a job that Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves. Pretty close to the exact words. Is Joe Biden going to be able to take America through the five stages of grief on Afghanistan and get us to accept that this was a, a tragedy that is nobody's fault except everybody's fault or that we had some fault in this? We covered this last week. I think the Washington Post had a uh, an editorial whose fault is Afghanistan? It's all of ours as Americans. Like they want us to accept that so that they can get away with the next round of military industrial complex fuckery, whatever form that may be. And I think it, it this follows Steven Pinker's decline in violence that they get away with less, uh, less violence, less exploitation with every version of, of, you know, every cycle of conflict. But uh, in this case, what I see is that the, the potential uh, is, is that Joe Biden said the, the terrorist threat has metastasized, you know, the word used for a cancer that's growing out of control. So if, 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 if he gets us to buy into his false narrative, even now, <clears throat> we might be celebrating, oh, yes, acceptance, the war in Afghanistan was a failure. But if you see it as a failure, you're missing the reality that it was a success. It was a war crime. Possibly the most profitably efficient war crime in human history. Efficient, efficiently profitable war crime in human history. Anyway, so a few quick headlines on Afghanistan today. APnews.com, last troops exit Afghanistan, ending America's longest war. The United States has completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan, ending America's longest war. I gotta say that again. And closing a chapter in military history likely to be remembered for colossal failures, unfulfilled promises, and a frantic final exit that cost the lives of more than 180 Afghans and 13 U.S. service members, some barely older than the war. 
So one of the interesting things that, that, that came out with this story is that they have this image of a night vision scope. So go ahead and pull that pull that up. It's the, the green night vision scope image with this first headline there, Jim. You're going to be seeing more of this. This is, I wish I had the brilliant meme next to this to put it, but you're going to see memes of this. You're going to need to know this image. And the caption from the AP is, in this image made through a night vision scope and provided by U.S. Central Command, Major General Chris Donahue, commander of the U.S. Army 82nd Airborne Division, XVIII, the 18th Airborne Corps, boards a C-17 cargo plane at the Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan, Monday, August 30, 2021, as the final American service member to depart Afghanistan. Now, what else do we have for headlines here? I mean, oh, sorry, before we move on to the other headlines, the image. Why not have him smiling and waving in broad daylight? Could they actually not even stage a, a crude, simplistic photo op like that? They make it, I, they want you to believe that it, I, it, you could look at this and say, well, is this a failure? Is this part of the failure that they release this photo? I think a, a major part of the natural inclination of the propaganda arm of the military industrial complex is just to make things look bad. It's bad. It's bad. Bad. Look, we had to get out under cover of darkness. We didn't get a ceremonial farewell, goodbye, wave picture. This is what we got for the last U.S. military personnel leaving Afghanistan. So, uh, the last American, according to the Guardian, uh, after 20 years, last U.S. flight departs Kabul, leaving Afghanistan to its fate. Last Americans, including acting ambassador, have now left, ending near 20-year occupation. One of my concerns that I'm going to be looking at sort of as a journalist in this story is how uh, already this is being misportrayed as being left to its fate. Because as, as you all know, there's going to be ongoing fuckery in Afghanistan. Uh, there's a specific uh, article about this image of the, the green image of General Donahue. Next is this headline, Reuters, leaving Afghanistan, U.S. General's ghostly image, book, image books place in history. As in like, yeah, that's that's one for the history books. Um, Cron.com has this from the Washington Post. Forever war may be over, but for Biden, a perilous new phase looms. Perilous new phase, again, setting up this excuse for more intervention, for more global war on terror. I don't think they're going to be able to uh, invade and, and, and take over a country the way they did with Iraq and Afghanistan. But. Uh, protracted military operations in the name of fighting terrorism globally. You know, I do see that. Uh, one of the excuses here on the propaganda from the drive.com, Al-Qaeda kingpin resurfaces in Afghanistan surrounded by Taliban security. And I just think, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Speaking of which, New York Post, nypost.com with this frightening headline, shocking video shows man hanging below Black Hawk flown by Taliban. Now there's more to this story that I, I, this is where like, I want to talk to the Taliban. Is, is this what, like, is there some righteous statement to this? What are they hanging some guy who got a uh, hundred 
people uh, murdered after being tortured for years at, at Abu Ghraib. You know, is this uh, within their realm a reasonable, well thought out death sentence? I don't know. There's going to be more to this. We're going to come back to that. I promise. But in terms of American aggression going on, why would they hang someone from a helicopter as a warning? Well, maybe it's because businessinsider.com has this next headline, U.S. drone strike killed 10 Afghan civilians in Kabul on Sunday. The U.S. and its allies killed thousands of civilians since the war began, actually estimated uh, between 40, 50,000. Another story on this Daily Mail with the, the bullet points. Um, we're just going to skip over that. Uh, again, links at t.me slash Adam versus the man. I, I, I had to go look this up separately, but this is uh, August 16th. So two weeks ago, the AP ran a story called Cost of the Afghanistan War in Lives and Dollars. And uh, with all the hand wringing now over, and, and well, they put it first. What is the human cost? American service members, 2,448 dead. U.S. contractors, 3,846. Afghan national military and police, 66,000. Afghan civilians, 47,000. Taliban and other opposition fighters, 51,000. And and I hate to say that even in this list, there is some bias that says these lives are worth more than others because you cannot present this list without having some kind of bias But clearly, when you see all of these stories now from the American mainstream media, what did it cost? Oh, my God. 2,448 American military service members dead now that it's over and there's none left there. Are you fucking kidding me? It is so inhumane to focus on that because you are basically saying Afghan lives don't fucking matter. Finally... um, I guess I guess we don't have time. We 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 have Wednesday, tomorrow we have uh, some time to catch up on skepticism on Bitcoin in El Salvador. Well, quick, I guess we can end on a good note today. Uh, Texas law expanding medical marijuana takes effect September first. So if you're in Texas tomorrow, one less layer of drug war bullshit to worry about. Um, but yeah, with that, let's get Ed up on screen here for final thoughts from our co-host comments on Afghanistan. Ed. Well, today I'm doing something special. I'm awarding membership in the Producers Club to Irate Samurai for his excellency in comments. Email Jim at thefreedomline.com and he'll hook you up. Man, this guy or girl or... This individual was right on target with every comment all day long, man. And I, I half of them I couldn't put up there, but they, good job. This person belongs in the club. Tell it. Absolutely. And again, Ed, I know Ed. Ed was was uh, we we had a long conversation last night, kind of convincing him of this format change. I think he's convinced yeah, that we should go ahead with this. But Ed, uh, comments are going to be so much better when we're not asking our audience to tune in live two hours a day, five days a week, and actively comment. It's going to be a weekly event, Wednesday evenings with Adam versus the man. Comments like that are going to be the norm. Thank you, Irate Samurai, for setting a great example today. We hope in the future you'll be joining us Wednesday evenings with your same enthusiasm. It's a great day to be alive, Adam. All right. That's usually the case. With that, 
Jim, give us the producer notes. What's going on? Hope you enjoyed the show, everybody. We got a uh, beautiful, beautiful interview we did today. T.me forward slash Adam Man is how you can find everything that we didn't get to cover today because we always find something not to cover. And I'm going to give you something better to look at than our faces for the rest of the promos. Patreon.com forward slash Adam Man. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Instagram at the Garden of Freedom, homefrontbattlebuddies.com, thecrypto6.com, and gogreenenergyonline.com. Those are all our websites that we promote on the show. Visit all of them in any order you like. And that is the angel pulling on grandpa's beard for the first time and a right hand saying, yes, like that one meme kid. All right, beautiful. Thank you very much, Jim. Wonderful show today. Finally, goodnewsnetwork.org, good news in history, August 31st, 75 years ago today. Foghorn Leghorn, the bombastic Warner Brothers cartoon character, debuted in a short film, Walkie Talkie Hockey. A large, overbearing rooster with a southern accent. His first name, Foghorn, is indicative of his loudmouth personality, while Leghorn refers to a particular Italian breed of chicken. Perhaps more significantly, on this day in 1837, Ralph Waldo Emerson delivered a speech explaining his transcendentalist philosophy for the first time to a large audience, a sort of intellectual declaration of independence telling them to break free from the past pay attention to the present and create their own unique ideas and with that well you decide who is more influential peace and love y'all choose happiness and be excellent